be with you. Let us pray. O God, because without you, we are not able to please you. Mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is, in with, is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who serve him, who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our fame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice, the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The New Testament reading is from Romans 14. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The word of the Lord. 
This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Just a note, our gospel reading really is from Luke. It's Luke 6, uh, 20 through um, 34, 36. Um, uh, the heading is wrong, but the reading is correct. Not that the other reading isn't good as well. It's, it's very good. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the for, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, praise to you, Lord Christ. We give you thanks and praise. Lord Jesus, we're just aware this morning what a privilege and a joy it is that we can study and read uh, your teachings. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Thank you, Lord, that you are present here with us, and we offer all these prayers in your name. Amen. You can be seated. So about 21 years ago, maybe a little more than 21 years ago, um, I had a conversation uh, that ended up being a turning point um, in my life. Uh, it took place um, at the Charlotte Airport um, in a Chili's, I believe it was, um, there, um, and took place over a number of hours as we were waiting for a flight back to Chicago. Uh, my wife was part of that conversation, and we were uh, meeting and talking with a couple named Kevin and Karen Miller, who were mentors and still are in many ways mentors to us, very involved in pastoral ministry, um, uh, just a lot of wisdom. And we had all just been at a conference where a bunch of Anglicans were talking about church ministry and thinking about sort of mission and all that entails. And at that conference, it had been time for Molly and I to continue to sort of respond to the sense that we had had for a number of years of God calling us to plant a church and to be part of a church plant. 
Um, and at that conference, and again, we had been experiencing this in many ways, we continued to feel this sense of the time was coming to take a next step, to start to take more concrete steps towards church planting. And so in this lunch with Kevin and Karen, as again, we waited for our plane, we started to talk with them, what would those next steps look like? And one thing we got into was what um, would forming a mission statement, right? Starting to put words to this sense of this church that we were feeling called to start, what would that look like? What would that process look like? This is something Molly and I had already thought about some, but again, Kevin and Karen were perfect people for us to talk to about this, right? They um, bring, and again, still bring and brought at that time, um, just great sort of practical thinking around, you know, what do you want in a mission statement, right? You want it to be memorable, hopefully, so that people remember the mission of your church, of their church, right? You want it to be unique um, to the, the unique church, to that local body, but you don't want it to be so unique that it's not in line, of course, with the mission that Jesus gives to his church, right? I mean, if you have a mission statement that's really cool and unique but isn't biblical, that's a problem. And so we talked through those things, but also alongside sort of that practical thinking, there was in a sense it was sort of like a spiritual direction conversation because they were really helping us to think through how do you name, how do you start to put words to something that before this has really been very sort of interior in this sense of, wow, we think God's stirring this, we think God's calling this, how do we start to sort of bring that out of this place of listening to the Lord? Well, we continue to listen to the Lord, uh, but sharing that with others. Sort of this is what we've heard from the Lord. Here's how best we can articulate this mission that we believe God is calling us to. And so after actually that lunch, again, it was really a turning point. We started to put together a mission statement and started to bring that to others, especially to leaders at Church of the Resurrection, the church we were part of, to say, we believe this is the church that the Lord is calling us to. We entered into a time of discernment where out of that they said, we believe that as well and we're blessing that and sending you um, with our blessing and commissioning you to plant this church. And that mission statement that came out of that time and that prayer and that conversation is actually almost exactly the same as the mission statement today for Church of the Cross. And you can read it there on the inside of the, the front bulletin that we are called to be a church where together we encounter Christ are changed by Christ and introduce Christ to others. That's what we've referred to as the, the mission statement of Church of the Cross. Again, the language was a little different back then because we were sharing a mission of a church that did not yet exist. We said we believe we're called to plant a church like this, right? Now it does exist, thankfully, um, because of the Lord's faithfulness. But again, that language otherwise is the same. And I believe it's the same. And again, we've actually had times over the years where vestry members, um, uh, staff members, various ministry team leaders have revisited this mission and said, does this still feel right to us? Does this still name what we believe God is calling us to? And the answer has been yes. Now, again, I think part of that is it's because we, you know, again, had a mission statement um, that is... I hope, but we believe in line with the scriptures. And so, of course, it should still be consistent because the scriptures are always consistent, right? And always applicable to our lives today and always define what our mission is. But I think it's also remained consistent because, again, it came from the Lord, we believe. And the Lord has called us to that. And again, these, these words remain important words for us to return to as we think about what are we called to as a church body. And so we are beginning a um, series on our mission and our values. And so if you're wondering what the, the topics of the sermons are going to be in upcoming weeks, you can just look there on page two. All right, that's what's coming. And hopefully you're excited about that and say, ooh, good. I'm looking forward to that. If not, I'm sorry, but it's going to be good. I promise. Uh, uh, as we think about our mission and our values. And again, this isn't just for those who are part of Church of the Cross, although we certainly hope you want to be part of our mission and invite you to be part of that. Because we believe, again, this mission that we're called to, these values that we're called to, 
apply to our life as disciples as well as our life as a community. So thinking through that first one, what are we saying when we say we seek to be a church where we encounter Christ? Now that mission is based on the promise of Jesus that when we gather together in his name, he is here. Right? We don't have to do something to sort of force Jesus to, to show up, right? Because he promises he's here when we gather in his name, right? When he gave the great commission to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he told them to go and make disciples. And the final thing he said is, and I am with you always, right? I'm with you. And so our mission is based on that promise and living in the reality that Jesus is present here with us, right? That he is Lord of the church. And so the question I want to consider today is who do we encounter when we encounter Jesus? A huge question, a question actually that began to be talked about last week, if you were here, when um, our bishop, Stuart, um, talked about uh, Jesus' question to the disciples, who do you say I am? I want to continue with that question and give a few answers, not an exhaustive list, but a few answers actually that grow out of our gospel reading today. And I'd also seen in our other readings, but primarily I want to look at the gospel reading. Who do we encounter when we encounter Jesus? And the first thing we can say very clearly is we encounter a teacher a great teacher, right? The greatest teacher, right? I believe it's fair to say is who we encounter is we encounter Jesus, right? We are struck. We are moved by his teaching. Even when I read the gospel reading, it's so fun to read um, the gospel reading. Uh, I could hear many of you saying, hmm, you know, it's like it's striking, right? His teaching. And we talk about Jesus as a great teacher. Perhaps we can think through who are great teachers we've known in our life, right? Whether that's in school, whether that's in other settings, right? Who kind of comes to mind as a great teacher? And probably the people we think of are knowledgeable, right? They know a lot. They know their subject well, right? Whether it's English, whether it's Spanish, whether it's theology, right? We'd say this is someone who really knew what they were talking about. But my guess is alongside of that knowledge is they taught in such a way that we wanted to learn more. Right? I'll hear people say, like, man, that teacher made history so interesting, or that teacher you know, made literature so interesting. Right? Well, basically what they did is they revealed right, the truth of those things and how applicable they are to our lives. Right? They gave meaning, or they, they helped us see the meaning. Right? There is meaning in those things. They helped us see, oh, this is worth learning. This is good to know. Right? A teacher, again, helps you see how what you're learning is applicable to your life and makes a difference. I've referenced before in sermons um, a podcast I love called The Rest is History, two British um, uh, historians um, who are very funny and have awesome British accents and really are extremely knowledgeable talking about various moments in history. But what I find again and again as I listen to that podcast and what I keep listening to is not only, oh, it's interesting to learn about history, is there'll be numerous moments often in these podcasts where they're talking about some dynamic at work, where they're talking about, you know, sort of the people in this moment, I'll realize, oh, that helps me understand life right now. That actually speaks to my life today. That speaks to some issue I've been thinking about, right? That's what great teachers do. And that's what Jesus does, right? More than anyone. Jesus is a prophetic teacher. He's a prophet, right? It's one of his titles, prophet, priest, king. Jesus is a prophet, and he speaks as a prophet. When we think about prophetic teaching, what prophetic teaching does, it comes directly from God, right? And it comes against often our false assumptions, Often, perhaps, at times, we're confronted in prophetic teaching on the wrong ways we think, and it opens our eyes, right? And we see, oh, this is the truth, right? This is the truth that transforms me. This is the truth that changes me. Again, it's confrontational often, right? No, Jesus' teaching is lovingly confrontational always, but it often does sort of surprise us, right? There are often many, many moments in Jesus' teaching where we're like, wait a second, can that be right? And we think, oh, it's from Jesus, it must be right, but this is challenging me to think through, right? That's what good teaching does. 
so as we look at this teaching, it begins with these blessings, um, four blessings, and then uh, woes, four woes. Right, the blessings often referred to as Beatitudes. You may be more familiar with the Beatitudes in the um, Gospel of Matthew at the um, beginning of the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, they're similar here. But Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you. Right? And inevitably, as familiar as these teachings may be to us, we probably say, can that be right? Is that right? You know, I've heard this teaching before, but still, I, whenever I hear it, I think, hold on a second, that doesn't seem right. Now, is Jesus saying it's good that there's poverty in the world? It's good that there's hunger? It's good that there's hatred in the world? No. Right? Jesus came right, to reverse sin and death, to defeat sin and death. Right? It's because we live in a fallen world that there's hunger and there's poverty and there's hatred. Right? And those things come out of. Right? Jesus' ministry actually came to relieve suffering, to bring hope. So he's not saying in and of itself these things are good, right? We know he fed the hungry, right? He did two times. He did a miraculous um, feeding of the hungry. We know he called people to be generous and to care for the poor. He called people to love and not to live in hatred. But I believe what he is saying is, he's saying those who are poor, right, there is a blessing because the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is a kingdom of abundance, right? Those who are hungry, there is a blessing because there is satisfaction that is coming. There is hope for you. For those who weep, there's a blessing. For there is joy that's coming. For those who suffer from persecution, right? There's an end to injustice that's coming. And I believe part of the blessing is the, the coming, the, the great reversal, as it's often called, the great change that is going to happen for those who suffer. But I believe part of the blessing as well is you actually see this world rightly. You understand that this is a fallen world. You understand that the suffering in this world is temporary, that it won't always be this way that things will change. You're actually living with, again, a right understanding of reality. And there is a blessing in that, even in the midst of suffering, because you know things will change, right? And it actually puts you in a place of dependence on the Lord. And so we have, again, those promises of blessing. And then we have the words of woe. And just again, as we read the promises of blessing in light of this great reversal, this great change, yeah, right? And the justice that the Lord is bringing, so too do we read the words of woe. Now, again, we may read these and say, can that really be right? Like, woe to you who laugh? Like, is it really bad to laugh? Or is it bad when people speak well of you? Like, that doesn't seem that bad, right? People spoke well of Jesus, after all, and that doesn't seem bad. Right? But I think, actually, key to understanding these woes is uh, verse 26. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. He's comparing, actually, those who he's speaking woe to, to the false prophets. And why did people speak well of the false prophets, right? Why did they celebrate the false prophets? Because the false prophets were telling them what they wanted to hear. Right? They were saying, right, you know, this is what you want to hear. They were basically teaching in order to please people. And what were they turning a blind eye to, right? They were turning a blind eye to sin. They were turning a blind eye to injustice. They were basically saying to people, live for today, right? Live for the pleasure of this moment. And that then puts all these woes in context, right? I mean, you can have a lot of resources and be generous with those, and that's a good thing. But woe to your rich for you receive your consolation, speaking those to you who hold on to those resources, to refuse to share them, who live in this moment rather than having that bigger vision, who, again, don't come against injustice, but actually benefit from injustice. Those who are full, those who laugh. The idea is these actually are like the false prophets, those who don't care about the suffering of others are only focused on their own gain. And Jesus very clearly is saying, woe to you, justice is coming. 
Judgment will come. If you do not repent and turn away from these things, right, it will cause you great suffering. You may be feeling good now, but a reversal is coming. And it's very important, right, as we read these, right, as we take to heart, as we're challenged by them, that then this then colors what we read next, right? It's building. Jesus is building off of these blessings and these woes as he says to us, love your enemies, right? If we read love your enemies, right, outside of the context of the blessing and woes, we may think that Jesus is saying, hey, just don't worry about evil, right? Don't worry about injustice. No big deal, right? Just be a nice person, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying the way to come against injustice, the way to stand against the injustice of this world, the way against stand against sin and evil is actually the way of love. It's the way of mercy, right? Not mercy that ignores injustice, but mercy actually that seeks to call people to justice, that seeks that they would turn away from their evil. And so take verse um, uh, 20. Um, nine, right? A, a, a hard verse, right? To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Jesus is not saying if you are being abused, right? If you're in an abusive relationship, an abusive situation, stay in that, right? Scholars agree, right? That's not what he's saying. I mean, one thing we see is to, who stri- to the one who strikes you on the cheek. Right? Why on the cheek? Because that was a symbol of insult. It was a symbol of rejection. It wasn't so much about being beaten up. It was about they were showing you, I'm insulting you as I strike you on the cheek. And Jesus is saying, respond to insult, not with insult, but actually with blessing, with love, that they may turn from their evil. But again, if you're being abused, get out of that abusive situation, right? Pray for those who abuse you, yes, but don't allow them to continue to abuse you, right? That's actually allowing evil to continue, and that is not what Jesus wants. What he wants, actually, is to re- us to respond in an opposite spirit, right? And he says, actually, interestingly enough, I mean, clearly at the end, we see when he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful, that's a reminder to us of the great mercy of God who pours out his mercy on us in order that we would repent, right? As it says in Romans, right? It is his kindness that leads to repentance. And so live in such a way, love in such a way that those who would do evil would turn from it. So there's a benefit, actually, to our enemies as we live this out. And we see, right, the incredible mercy and love of the Lord in Psalm 103, right? We heard just now about his steadfast love, about his kindness. And so there's actually, again, a benefit to those who we seek to love in his name. But he also says there's a benefit to us. He repeats that numerous times in the final section. What benefit is it to you? What benefit is it to you? Right? Saying again and again, do this for your own good. There's a coming reward. Do this for the sake of that future reward, but also do it for the sake of being like your father. And that's so beautiful, right? You're, even as your father is merciful, you have an opportunity to live as sons and as daughters of the Most High. Again, as we read Psalm 103, celebrate that, that that is God is, and then say, Lord, make me more like you. Give me the strength, right? Give me the, the eyes to love, right? To love in such a way that those who do evil, that those who are blind in justice would see the injustice they do and turn away from it. Lord, what a blessing it is to be like you. And so again, so we see in this teaching, and I'm just skimming the surface, I understand, right, a call to act differently, a call to actually the way our actions can bring difference. Let me share a story that I realize is a very small scale example of this, but one I found helpful. Uh, it was from a, a pastor named Steve Cuss, um, who writes uh, books and tells the story of his son, um, uh, who was a junior high basketball player, and how his um, son 
um, I was struggling because this guy on this team uh, uh, always hogged the ball, right? Someone would pass the ball to him, and he would never pass it to anyone else. He would just, you know, try to dribble and, and shoot it, and, and it was really hurting the team. And his son was getting so angry, so of course his son decided, no surprise, I'm never going to pass the ball to this guy. And that's what other team members decided. And pretty soon the whole team was suffering, right? They weren't passing anymore. They were all becoming ball hogs, right? And so um, Steve, uh, Pastor Steve says to his um, uh, son, I can't say Pastor Cuss. It's just kind of an unusual uh, last name. But anyway, um, uh, he actually has a blog called Cuss Words. So, um, so there you go. Uh, he makes fun of his own name. But Pastor Steve says to his son, um, here's what I want you to do. Every time you get the ball at a scrimmage, right, even at a game, pass to this guy. Like, always pass him the ball. Of course, his son was like, that's crazy. That's terrible advice. And somehow, he convinced his son to at least try it. And so his son started doing it. And it was not long after starting to do this that what happened? Well, the guy started passing the ball to others. Right? He'd get the ball, and he'd pass it because he realized, I keep getting passed to. And so I'm going to pass to others. Matter of fact, I don't have to be afraid that when I get the ball, I must, you know, hog it because no one will give it to me again. I'm actually realizing people will give me the ball. And the whole team changed. The whole team dynamic changed. Now, again, that's much smaller than experiencing hatred or persecution or hunger, all these things. I understand that. But to me, there's a principle at work there. That sometimes, actually, when we respond in love, we may see a change. Now, sometimes we don't. And that's where we just trust the Lord. But he's calling us to change and to bring that change. So Jesus is a teacher. Again, an amazing teacher. But if we're honest, um, as we hear these confrontational teachings, these teachings to change. Hopefully we feel some sense of yes, and help me, Lord, to do that. But perhaps also we realize, wow, I often don't do this. I I know Jesus calls me to to live in in grace. I know Jesus calls me to forgive. But I often fall into bitterness, right? I often live in unforgiveness. I often live in a desire for revenge. But the great thing is Jesus isn't just a teacher. He's an amazing teacher. His teaching is beautiful and effective. But as his teaching shines a light on our sinfulness, we celebrate that Jesus is a teacher and a savior. That Jesus actually who shows us our need for a savior is the savior who brings forgiveness, who brings restoration. And so these teachings do not come as a burden, which they would apart from grace, but they actually come from an invitation to receive his grace, to receive his forgiveness, and then to live out, right, this teaching, knowing we've been forgiven for the ways in which we do not live out this teaching. And of course, as we celebrate Jesus as our Savior, we celebrate his love, right? What a great teacher. It's great to have a great teacher, but to have a great teacher that loves us and knows us, that's even greater, who again, gives us these teachings as a gift to us to build us up and to strengthen us. Uh, my wife, Molly, who's on the uh, women's retreat, actually um, sent me a quote um, uh, from the women's retreat, knowing I was uh, preaching on this subject. Um, it's a great quote it's from a guy named Sebastian Gomez, who I don't know. But he says this. He says, the truth of being a sinful human being and simultaneously being loved by the creator is a mysterious paradox. And though we may not have the ability to fully comprehend it or the words to explain it, it is a truth that prominent saints, past and present, have felt the need to acknowledge and speak. When we Christians say, I'm a sinner, what we're really saying is, God is love. I love that, right? And so we, as we acknowledge, yes, as these teachings confront us and we see our sinfulness, we also see the incredible love of the one who has saved us, who builds us up. And again, Jesus is our teacher. Jesus is our savior. But he's also the one who empowers us to live out his teachings. 
And so he doesn't just give us forgiveness, although if he did, that'd be amazing and, and worth worshiping him, right? But he gives us help. He pours out his forgiveness, his mercy on us, and he strengthens us. He empowers us through his presence. And so we speak of encountering Christ, right? We encounter one who teaches us, who loves us, who saves us, and then helps us, who is with us in helping us to live out this teaching and helping us respond to it. He empowers us. And so as we consider, right, love your enemies, we can consider, oh, I'm indwelled by the very spirit of the one who perfectly loved his enemies. I'm indwelled by the one who is perfectly merciful, who actually washed Judas's feet, even though he knew Judas was about to betray him, who actually prayed as he was being put on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And when we say, how did he do that, right? How can he be so loving? We can say, Lord Jesus, who is with me and who empowers me, help me to be that loving, right? Be that love for me that I can't be in my own power. Right? That's what we celebrate when we celebrate encountering Christ. I have a friend, Mike, who I've, I've shared about before, who when he um, came to faith in Christ, um, he was, uh, had a, a significant struggle with alcohol addiction, with abusing alcohol. As he came to faith in Christ, he heard testimonies from some people who said, you know, you know I struggled you know, with addiction, and then I came to faith in Christ, and it disappeared. Right? I, you know, someone prayed for me, and I never craved those things again. And so he heard that, and he said, that's what I want. You know, so he called out to people to pray for him. I was a friend of his at the time, still am a good friend of his. Right? And we prayed for that, but he didn't experience it. He actually continued to, to have that craving. He would have seasons of being sober, then he'd fall into um, drinking again, and or that's even where he struggled, and he gets sober again. And really over a year, longer than a year, he had this cycle, right, of struggle and then, you know, staying sober and falling back into it. And he became really frustrated. He kept thinking, why doesn't God just heal me of this? I keep asking him to heal me. Right? But he sought out the Lord in his word. He got um, very plugged into a church, right? I mean, reach out to people. Sometimes he'd reach out to people to pray for him when he was drunk, right? Because <laughs> he was still wanting freedom from this and wanting the help. And he began to seek out the Lord, right, through a 12-step program. He began to seek out the Lord through a sponsor, got a great sponsor who was not a Christian, but actually encouraged him to grow in his faith and ended up playing a role, actually, in him growing in his faith. And over time, over, again, more than a year, he got more and more empowered to continue to follow the Lord. And he got strengthened in his life of obedience, right, and eventually got sober and stayed sober. Now, I don't pretend to, you know, know all the ways the Lord works, but when I look at my friend Mike now today, and I look at how many people he has walked alongside, how he is actually known at his church for being someone, if you're struggling, this is a guy who will show you mercy, and he will show you kindness, and he will be present with you in whatever you're going through, right? He's known for that, right? He's kind of the guy, like, you're hurting, you're struggling, talk to Mike. And I just wonder if that he had received that, you know, one time, boom, your addiction is gone forever, right? Which the Lord does at times. I believe testimonies, I've heard to that. I just wonder, would he have the same ministry today? Was it actually the daily seeking of the Lord's power? The daily calling out, Lord, I need your partnership today. I need to acknowledge that you indwell me, help me on this day. That actually empowered him to be such a force um, in the lives of others. To actually be such a source of the Lord's power in others. And I share that again as we consider encountering the Lord's empowerment. Maybe at times we feel like, I don't know, I'm not seeing it. And perhaps, right, the Lord is wanting you to stay in that place of humility, that place of dependency, that place of daily seeking his empowerment, actually for the sake of the work he's calling you to, and for the sake of even a greater sense of his power. 
So let's pray. Let's pray that we would know this encountering. And I invite you, and please pray for us as a church community, that we would continue to live out on this mission. Let's pray for that. Jesus, again, we thank you that you are present here with us. And we just take a moment, Lord, just to celebrate that and acknowledge that, that you are here. You speak to us. You are alive. And Lord, as we encounter your teaching, as we encounter your forgiveness and grace, as we encounter your power, we just pray, Lord, um, give us an openness to receive all that you want to give us. Again, Lord, we pray for your healing and strengthening power. And we give you thanks and praise in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.